Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers, and we've got some amazing episodes coming up this week. Brand new episodes that I've recorded with some of the world experts on the world wars. But to kick us off, we're bringing you a classic from Dan Snow's history hit on the sinking and recovery of Germany's battle fleet in Scarpa Flow. As we know, the Allies seized the German fleet at the end of the First World War, and it was to be held at Scarpa Flow in Orkney until the Treaty of Versailles was announced. Well, at least this was the plan. In an astonishing move, the German Navy covertly scuttled their own boats under the nose of their captors, rendering the fleet completely useless. This was until one firm set out on a massive salvage operation to recover usable material. To tell us more, Ian Murray Taylor, whose grandfather was at the top of the operation, talks to Dan Snow about the story of Scarpa Flow. Enjoy. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, very nice to be here, and thanks for inviting me. The First World War anniversaries, in a way, haven't stopped, have they? We need to keep into 1919, all sorts of things going on in India, in Ireland, and of course, in maritime history. So, finish the war. What happened to the, to the German high seas fleet at when, they, when the Germany asked for an armistice in November 1918? The terms of the armistice were that the German fleet were to be taken to a neutral, and the Treaty of Versailles, German fleet was supposed to be taken to a neutral port as yet to be determined, and interned there while the negotiations were taking place amongst the Allies for the subdivision of the fleet amongst the victorious Allies. But in fact, the British had no intention of going to a neutral harbour, so the German fleet was met by one of the C-class cruisers which is followed by Admiral Beatty and the flagship Queen Elizabeth and the whole British fleet. In the middle of the North Sea, the two greatest fleets on earth meet and process together, don't they, towards Scotland? Yes, I mean, what happened was that the German fleet, the British fleet was in two columns. The German fleet sailed between the two columns and the British columns then turned to follow the German fleet parallel to them with their guns trained on them uh, with a very sort of message that now we've got you. The most magnificent and powerful concentration of naval might in the history of the world to that point. And what a moment. No, no doubt, because, I mean, this com- comprised British fleets, British ships, French ships, and American ships. So there was a huge fleet. I, ca- I can't remember offhand 
the exact number. And where does the German fleet end up? Well, they were taken to the Firth of Forth so that they could be examined to make sure that they had been properly demilitarized. Because the terms were that before they could sail, they had to have all their ammunition removed, all their fire control equipment, their rangefinders, lenses, even their radios removed. The only thing they were allowed was a navigation equipment to ensure safe navigation from Germany to the designated port of the Allies, which was the Firth of Forth. The ships were then inspected by the British thoroughly to ensure that there was no, no hidden secrets, scuttling charges or anything secreted on the ships. And after that, they lay for a little bit and then they were escorted in groups by the British fleet to Scarpa Flow, which was itself was really a betrayal of the terms of the armistice. But the loser can't really complain in these circumstances. Scarpa Flow is a giant natural harbour in Orkney where the British fleet, the Allied fleet, had been based effectively during the First World War. So, so now the Germans are anchored in what had been the, the main British base. What sort of what were conditions like on board? Were there skeleton crews? What did they get up to? Well, well they had, first of all, they had a, quite, quite a large passage crew because, I mean, these ships take quite a little bit to run. I mean, normally if a ship's in reserve, it would have two-thirds complement, but it wasn't quite as much as that because you wouldn't have the gunnery people and things like that, but still had steaming crew, maintenance crew. But gradually the British were forcing the Germans to repatriate more of the maintenance crew. And the Germans suspected quite rightly that this was to make it easier to seize the ships at some time in the future. The British felt like it. And once they'd anchored in Scarpa Flow, how, what did the crews get up to? Very little. They were, they were just, I mean, total indiscipline broke down. There were sailors' councils sort of tell, bossing the officers about, and it was just total mutiny, and the ships were deteriorating. And um, the crews were not allowed ashore, although Admiral von Reuter did ask the British Admiral, and the local British Admiral actually was amenable to the Germans being allowed ashore, but further up the chain of command, that concession was squashed. And so the German crew were really, I mean, living in very uncomfortable conditions because their ships weren't designed for habitability compared to the British ships because they weren't designed for worldwide service as the British ships were. And the, the food was supplied from Germany and was of pretty poor standard and not very much of it. So a miserable posting, really, for these Yes, for these and I mean, the Orkney weather. I mean, one German officer was supposed to have remarked that if the British Navy stood this for four years, it's no wonder they won the war. They, they build them tough in Orkney. Yeah. Uh, so, so this goes on for how many months? They, they started in November, and the last ship arrived on the 10th of January. It was their newest battleship, which had yet to be completed. So, so by, by January, they're all there? Yes. And then tell me about the infamous event later that year. Well, la later on, I mean, the Treaty of Versailles, the actual terms of the surrender and the subdivision of the fleet were being decided amongst the Allies. And Admiral von Reuter was not kept in the loop. And the actual negotiations had actually been extended, but he was unaware of this. And during this, inexplicably, the British fleet of the five R-class battleships, which were guarding the Germans, went out into the Pentland Firth with all their escorting destroyers and carried out torpedo firing exercises, leaving the German fleet virtually unguarded. I mean, this is a surprising one, but no evidence has emerged since of any collusion. And at this time, Admiral von Reuter, suspecting that with the small crew's seizure was imminent, distributed secret scuttling orders 
and the British actually delivered these orders for him because there were no British people. The ships were only in turn, so there were no British supervision of the German ships. So von Reuter sent out these orders and the food came over from Germany, a cargo steamer, was deposited in one battleship. The quartermaster there would dish out the rations to the different ships, bag it up, and inside this bag, to each ship, was the explicit scuttling orders. And the British fleet then calmly distributed the food and provisions and scuttling orders. And, and so the date is now? 21st of June. 21st of June? 1919. So a hundred years ago this month, the treaty of uh, the terms of the Treaty of Versailles uh, are made public. Germany loses all its battleships, it loses its air force, all that kind of stuff. And and so what what does the German fleet do? Well, not not quite true because at that time, the actual terms of the treaty had not been announced. So von Reuter was unaware of it. So he was going on instinct that um, it was going to be, happen, and so he beat the British to it. And what happened was that he hoisted a preparatory signal saying paragraph 11 confirm, which was the coded signal for the surrender, for the scuttling. And because the ships had reduced crews, it took a long time for all the ships to acknowledge the signal. And it was only when all the ships had acknowledged that they had read the signal and were ready to act that von Reuter could hold down his signal flags, which is a signal for the scuttling to commence. And at that time, the Germans hoisted their ensigns in defiance of all standing orders and opened the seacocks and every opening, depending on different ships, um, um, on how cooperative the crew were. Um, they opened tor torpedo tubes in some ships, magazine flooding valves, boiler room flooding valves, and the ship sank. Some ships, one ship actually, the Frederick de Grasse sank in 45 minutes which is absolutely remarkable for a 28,000-ton or 26,000-ton battleship. So it requires an intake of about between 20 and 30,000 tons of water an hour to sink her as fast as that. So they must have opened every hole in the bottom they could find. And yes, yeah, so, so scuttling, for those who don't know, is to sink your own ship. Yes. And it is the duty of every commander in time of war to prevent his ship falling into the hands of the enemy. And as... Von Reuter believed that the treaty was still not made a full surrender and the ships were only interned and not under the command of the British, he carried out his orders with exemplary efficiency. And he believed legality? Yes. So the entire German, the second largest navy on earth, yeah. is sinking in one of Scotland's greatest ports. Yes. What do people watching do? Look in amazement, I think. <laughs> Because there were there were there was an excursion of people schoolchildren going sailing around the fleet, and they suddenly saw the fleet killing over, and sinking, and so they got a bird's eye view. But unfortunately, there is no cine record of the, of this scuttling. But there were but a photographer went out and took some very good still photographs, and Mr. Burrows, and these are the main photographs that are always seen of the scuttling showing the ship sinking. I will obviously post those on all our social media channels if. It is legal to do so. Right, so the, the ships are all sinking. Did anyone try and intervene? And, and is it absurd to say, could you keep many of the float? Um, yes, they did. I mean, the, there were a few fleet auxiliaries and they managed to tow one, one battleship. They managed to beach in shallow water and some of the crews and, and the destroyers. But in the main, I mean, the Germans have been quite thorough. 
they had either welded or trashed the threads on their anchor stopper chain so they couldn't they couldn't disconnect the anchor cables to, to tow them ashore and unless the ships had already been pre-warned and are carrying oxyacetylene cutters to cut them and of course there weren't any tugs and there were only a, a few auxiliaries there anyway and by the time the main fleet came steaming back with their guns trained there was nothing left to shoot at how deep is scarpa flow it varies up to about 160 170 feet of water that's the deepest any of the ships were scuttled in about a 16-story building, quite a tall building. Can you salvage hulls and wrecks at that depth? It had never been done before. And then, then of course, here, here's where the start of the story. The, the Admiralty, really, their attitude was, there they lie and, and there they'll stay. And then a firm of Cox and Danks had been scrapping a lot of the obsolete British battleships because by, by the time the war ended, a lot of the British battleships were no, no longer fit for modern warfare. And therefore, a large number of the 12-inch gunships in particular were scrapped immediately after the war. And so Cox of Cox and Danks at his yard and bought quite a few of the ships for scrapping. And then he bought an ex-German floating dock, which is part of the reparations for scuttling the fleet. And he looked at this and thought that this could actually be used for lifting some of the destroyers. Because the destroyers were only about a thousand tons, and this floating dock had a three thousand ton lifting capacity. And he met, funnily enough, my grandfather on a fishing trip in the north of Scotland. They were staying in the same hotel, and they started talking. And Cox started talking about his ambitions for salvaging the German fleet. And my grandfather said that he was a salvage expert, and had worked in World War One in the Admiralty Salvage Department. And he, one of his tasks was to try was to save the lives of the crew members of the sunken submarine K-13 when she sank in the Gerloch. This has repercussions later, which you might hear of, by the way. And so the two set up an agreement that they would have a go. And so Cox, using his own money, with no other... It wasn't a public company at all. He purchased 25 destroyers and two German battleships from the Admiralty for £24,000. But they were underwater. Yes. But, I mean, everybody scoffed at this and said, well, they never raised their ship and they're just wasting their money. But, I mean, Cox and my grandfather worked out a plan and they cut the floating dock in half, took it up to Orkney, first of all, and set up a salvage base, cut the floating dock in half. And what they did was they they would locate a sunken destroyer, moor the floating dock halves either side of it, pass cables under the destroyer. How do you do that? Um, divers would blast under, well, parts of the wreck would be above the water because the seabed's not level. And where, where they had to, to get an even spacing of the cables under the ship, they, they'd take water hoses and, and tunnel under the ship. So a diver would tunnel all the way through to the other side with a light rope, and then they'd pull heavier wires through till they pulled the full lifting wire through. What depth could divers go to at that point? They could work up to about 160 feet, but the destroyers were mainly in, in close inshore in a fairly shallow water. In fact, a lot of them, their, their masts were showing above the surface and that sort of thing, so they're fairly shallow. Extraordinary. So they're quite innovative at the time. No one had ever really tried anything like this before, had they? No, I mean, ships have been lifted with pontoons, you know, I mean, or, or using other ships as, as, as pontoons. I mean, it was, was a technique, but what Cox and Danks did was that they outfitted the floating dock with a series of 10-ton winches, 10 of each, on each side of the dock, and put a 10-to-1 
purchase, which meant that each 10-ton winch could lift 100 tons. And they then spaced the cables, lifting wires, underneath the German destroyer. When, when the tide was low, they would tighten up the cables so that there was no slack at all. And as the tide rose, it would pick up the floating dock, complete with the destroyer underneath. But in order to get a major lift where they could do maybe 20 feet in a single tide instead of six or eight, they actually got four to six men on each single winch. Wind, and so you had 10 winches with four to six men on each side, winding 20 turns at a time. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So hang on, I thought these are mechanical. These are, these are human-powered winches. Yes, yes. It's quite, quite impractical to have, have to try and control mechanical winches. Because there, there, I mean, you know that one turn of the handle raised each, each piece of the winch wire exactly the same amount. And, of course, labour was cheap in that time. And, I mean, Cox, once they've done the lifting, they shut it down for the winter and fire them all. It was quite ruthless in that respect. So they start on the smaller ships in the shallower water. Yes. And it's a success. And, he, well, he, in the first year, he raised six destroyers. The next 14, I think it was, and the next eight, the other seven, and that was the destroyers. And then he got, and of course, by then, he got some money in the bank. And then sitting on the bottom with a imposing funnels and superstructure and part of a turret out of the water was the German battlecruiser Hindenburg, which is a 28,000-ton battlecruiser. She was lying upright, and she looked by far the easiest salvage proposition, although it actually turned out that she was the most difficult and nearly caused the operation to fail. Tell me more. Well, what they had to do was, first of all, make about 800 patches to seal all the openings in the deck, because, of course, the deck's not supposed to be watertight, the bottom of the hull is. But also, the Germans had scuttled the ship, 
So the torpedo tubes, which were exposed, fortunately, above the mud line, could be plugged with cement. But the main seawater inlet valves of the condenser, which were about 30 inch diameter, had been opened to scuttle the ships. And of course, they were under the ship's bottom, embedded in the mud. There was no way you could tunnel your way under the ship and find these valves and plug them. So divers had to go down inside the ship in a helmeted, with their lifelines and air hose, go down through six decks into the engine room, which is filled with a mixture of mud, lubricating oil, coal dust, and fuel oil in total darkness, locate these valves and close them. I mean, it's just, that's extraordinary. And German have... ships were famous for being like uh, the warrants, weren't they? Because all the yeah. watertight compartments, they were, ve they were constructed very, very small compartments to make sure they could survive shot strikes from shells and things. So that, and doing that in a bulky diving gear in the 1920s, this is incredible. And your torch could only show you about six inches in front of you. Luckily, in that case, the Germans had been so confident that the British wouldn't get near them that they hadn't thrown away the handles to operate the valves or crashed the threads, which would have made it very, very difficult. So they went down, they closed all the seacocks, they closed the holes up in the bottom of the hull. Did, yes. did any divers perish doing this? Yes, so one or two, but not actually during diving operations. I mean, there, there were two fatalities during actual working operations. One, when there was an explosion, because they, were, they cut through a pipe and it was full of combustible gases and there was an explosion, which knocked somebody unconscious and it blew some rivets out so the water level in that compartment rose and another where a crane jib collapsed due to not being lubricated on shore and it fell and killed somebody ashore. But those were the only two fatalities during the operation. It sounds like these men should have been awarded George Crosses, but, uh, or well, the George Medal. I mean, I would love to put this operation, explain how it went, and talk to a health and safety man from, of today. I think because he, under health and safety, you couldn't even think of it. I think he or she would have a nervous breakdown. And it's all worth remembering what what was the plan with these with these wrecks when they were raised? But they weren't were they going to be put back into service or they're just chopped up and sold as scrap? There was a, the, the idea was that money raised by scrapping the ships would cover the cost of purchasing the wrecks and the salvaging of them. So it's done as a commercial operation for a profit, and in fact, they would have achieved profitability, but for circumstances that was beyond their control when the depression came. Okay, I'll, st I'll ask about that in a second. But so who are the customers? I mean, just who, who wants the metal? The wrecks were normally towed south for scrapping and the metal industries had leased an admiralty dry dock in Rosyth and the battleships and battle cruisers that Cox and Dank salvaged were towed from Orkney down to Rosyth under the fourth bridge and taken into the dry dock there and scrapped. It took usually about nearly six months to scrap them. But again, I mean, to do this, you had to remove... You had to prepare the ship for towing by putting living quarters on for the passage crew and putting another quarters for the machinery, for gener electrical generators and your air compressors to keep the ship afloat during the voyage because there was always a risk of bad weather and the ship rolling and spilling air. So they're turning their cruisers into plowshares. Very, <laughs> yeah. very admirable. Yeah. Uh, very 1920s. So, so the operation's going, they get, they get more and more positive. They, what, tell me about the Hindenburg. So how do they manage, did they manage to get it up eventually? Well, what happened was that this is one of the interesting ones, that Cox was a very obstinate man, and I would like to have been a fly on the wall between some of the discussions between Cox and my grandfather over, over the salvage of the Hindenburg, because Cox was obsessed with salvaging a whole battleship with funnels, the whole of the fighting control 
tower masks and masts and tunnels and turrets. And as the ship rose, because all the decks, as the ship listed, all the water flows to the low side, and a lot of this water is high up on the ship, which of course causes instability. And with the heavy top hamper, um, it was unsustainable. And every time they tried to raise the ships, the list got greater. They tried putting a destroyer on the high side to hold her down. The hawsers broke. They tried putting a hawser onto a destroyer sunk on the shore a long way away to hold her upright. That's broke. And the ship took a very heavy list and they knew that if they carried on pumping water out, she had just turned over and they'd never salvaged her. And so they had to sink her to the bottom while they th thought about what to do about it. And then shortly after this, one of the famous Orkney Gales sprang up and smashed a lot of the patches. And so Cox, to his credit, instead of packing up operations and cutting his losses, decided that they'd go for another ship. And the best target they picked was the battlecruiser Moltke. And she was lying upside down in about 80 feet of water with parts of her hull showing above the water at low tide. And so what they did was they put some tubes on the hull, metal tubes called airlocks, which effectively were underwater staircases, so you could go from the surface down into the ship once you was full of compressed air without getting wet. And these were 10, 20 feet in height on this ship. And so they pumped air into the bow, or into the ship, and the bow became buoyant, reached the surface, the air rushed to the high side, spilled out, and the bow settled back and stayed just afloat. So obviously this didn't work. So what they had to do was put more airlocks down and decide to subdivide the ship into three sections, a forward, a middle section, and a stern or back section, so that the air could be trapped instead of rushing to the high side. And they then made the bulkheads inside the ship airtight down to a certain level and pumped air into the middle and stern sections, and the ship floated up. I mean, I'm not an engineer, but to me, this sounds like the greatest job in the history of the world. Every day, different challenges, completely different tools, different locations. I mean, you, they might, it must have been so exciting. It was. It was, it was very dirty work and very messy work because, of course, um, the ships had oil fuel, the lubricating oil and machinery spaces, and they were upside down. And, of course, it meant that you're not, your ladders were no use to you. You had to rig staging planking on the, on the, what was a deck head, which is now your floor, and separate ladders to get down. You had to patch all the openings in the bulkheads and make them airtight. And there's lots of pipes going through and things like that. And you're working under air pressure, although the air pressure was maybe 20 pounds, 10 to 20 pounds to the square inch on the shadow ships, which meant you could work about eight, an eight hour shift without having to decompress. But when they got to the later ships, this became a big problem. Because in the last ship, if you're working at the maximum depth and pressure, your working day was limited to one and a half hours under full pressure. So talk to me, talk to me about that last ship. Are they, they go really deep, do they? Yes, the Durflinger was at nearly 160 feet. The Durflinger Jutland veteran. Yes, the ship that um, was reputed to have fired salvers that could possibly have sunk both the Queen Mary and Invincible. Amazing. So, so it's, in, it's in very deep water and yes. they go after it. Well, not no, she was, she was the last ship to be salvaged. There's a lot went on between then. Cox and Danks um, salvaged some more battleships, and eventually the Depression came, and the last ship they salvaged in 1931, um, they couldn't sell. So she was just beached in Lioness and left to lie there. And which ship was that? Yes, yeah, so the Prince of Regent Leopold, yes. But Cox and Danks, in fact, raised 
six battleships and battlecruisers in this time. After the Moltke, they then returned to the Hindenburg. And this time they, they had they'd consulted with leading naval architects and Cox at last was persuaded to abandon his dream of a complete battleship. So they cut off the big mast or the fighting control tower, removed some of the heavy turrets and the funnels and things like that. And they also built some very large concrete cradles under the stern to hold the ship steady while, while they were pumping the water out. And so they pumped the water out and this time there was a small list but they controlled it. And they also made much more care in removing the water trapped in the upper levels of the ship. And this time they didn't have the stability problems. I'm with Cox. I'd have tried to I'd have tried to raise a whole battleship in one piece. That'd have been so exciting. So they so through the 1920s they're doing more of these. What what are the last couple of ships they they go for? After the depression, um, metal industry is having scrapped all the ships and made quite a profit out of breaking them up. I mean, bought them from Cox. Decided they they would salvage the remaining ships themselves. And so my grandfather was appointed general manager and chief salvage officer of the whole operation. And my father joined the operation at that time as well as a salvage officer. And so they then tackled the remaining ships, which were in much steeper water, ranging from 108 feet up to nearly 160 feet of water. And then things got more difficult because as you have raised the ship, the bow up angle becomes greater, which means you need more sections subdivided to get the stepping effect to stop the air rushing to the high side and also as the ship is at a bigger bow up angle it's much less stable and so you have stability problems and it's harder to work at those depths for and, the the air, and you were starting to run into restrictions on your working time under pressure i mean in bayern i can't remember the pressure offhand but it, but they're down the pressure under working pressure was probably about two two and a half hours but then on the durfling as i say at full pressure it was down to 100 an hour and a quarter, an hour and a half. So they go after the Durflinger, the Jutland, the Jutland veteran. Yeah, she was called the Iron Dog because of the number of times she'd been hit by shells. She was a floating wreck by the end of the battle, but she certainly made her presence felt. Well, she was she was hit over twenty times, about twenty odd heavy shells. But I mean, the difference between the Durflinger and the Lutzow, which sank, was a Durflinger. The damage was fairly evenly spread over the ship, whereas Lutzow was practically all the damage was in the bow and below the water, quite a lot below the waterline. And so she eventually was steaming with a stern out of the water and her turret submerged forward. So anyway, they go after the Dervlinger, deep water. This was really getting right to the limit because she, ate, because she also had a 20 degree list. And also because she'd been on the seabed since 1919, and this was 1939, the upper works were much more deeply embedded in the mud and the suction was much more difficult to quantify. Now I've been stuck in the mud recently on history hit business. And I'm going to tell you, it's hard to get out and that's just my foot. So how do you get a battleship embedded in the mud out of that mud? Well, you've got to make the ship airtight right down to deck level so you can get the maximum buoyancy with compressed air. And then you put compressed air in and very, very gradually, the excess buoyancy starts to just pull the ship very, very slowly out of the mud. So, so you're not doing it with cables, you're just doing it with compressed air that you're yes. pumping in? Yes. Whoa. Well, I mean, there's, there's nothing, there's no ship with 28,000 tonnes lifting capacity that you put cables on there. OK, good point. <laughs> I told you I'm not an engineer. Good point. <laughs> so you're just filling up this ship with like a helium balloon. And but there was no, I mean, it's a stupid question, but were they slightly nervous? It would just break free and go whoop up to the surface like well, a I duck mean, in a this bath. Is, this is the trouble, is that you couldn't calculate how much excess buoyancy you had. But, I mean, if you take a ship takes about 20-odd thousand tonnes to sink of water... If you fill her with, completely with air to lift her out, to break the suction of the mud, I mean, apart from the 
air you put in to give the ship buoyancy, you need a, you've probably got about 20,000 tons of excess buoyancy in the compressed air. And of course, as the ship rises, the, any, the water pressure decreases and the air expands violently and the ship blows up to the surface in a matter of seconds. Is that what happened? Yes. And what's more, they were on the top of these 130-foot airlocks, they had, a, they had a man on each of the airlocks controlling the pressure and signaling the pressure. And I've spoken to one of the divers who's, who used to be on top of one of the airlocks because the divers were probably the least flappable people amongst the salvage crew. And so they were given the job of going on the airlocks. And there was a jocular story about what the hell's the point of giving me a life jacket and shooting me 100, 100 feet in the air. So the diver bounces up out of the mud in 1939. Yeah. God, that must have been a sight. It is. It's on film. Between 1933 and 1939, metal industry salvaged a further six capital ships, amounting to 152,000 tons. And from 1924 to 1939, Cox and Danks and metal industry between them salvaged 12 battleships and battlecruisers, one cruiser and 25 destroyers, totaling over 323,000 tons from the bottom of Scarpa Flow, the mortar depths raising them about 30 feet up to nearly 160 feet. This is by far the most challenging salvage operation ever carried out. It was a high-risk commercial operation, which despite the dangers and difficulties was profitable. It's never been bettered. It's completely extraordinary. How many German ships are left down there today? Um, there's three battleships left and, and some cruisers, but the cruisers have rotted away. And the battleships, they weren't salvaged because the war intervened. Although it's, pro it's unlikely it would have been salvaged anyway because they all had extreme lists of 30 to 40-odd degrees, which would have made trying to get, maintain, get stability and working in them very, very difficult. And also the battleships were about 100 feet shorter than the battle cruisers, and therefore the barracks up angle would have been more extreme and probably wouldn't have been salvaged anyway. Well, I think your granddad could have done it, I'm sure, even if the war hadn't intervened. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast to talk about well, history's most remarkable salvage operation. Well, it was a great pleasure, and a very great pleasure to meet you and, and to get this story out in, into the domain where people can appreciate it. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.